0: Father, I stand before you this morning in great weakness. Lord, trusting in your promise that in my weakness you will be shown strong. Father, I pray that you will take glory for yourself in the preaching of your word. I pray that you will magnify yourself in our hearts at the preaching of your word. That you will use the word preached in our lives, not just for this day, but for the rest of our lives. Father, I pray that if there are any here who do not know You, that You would use the word preached to bring them into a saving relationship with You. Father, I pray that for us who do know You, that You would use this word preached to, to grow us in our relationship with You. Lord, I pray that You would guard us from error. I know my weakness and, and the ability to, to to misunderstand or to go to the left or the right. I pray that you would keep us focused on Christ, that we would not go to the left or the right, but we would be focused on you and what you've done for us and and, and that you would keep us that you would keep us from wavering. Bless the preaching of your word. Take glory for yourself in your name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 14. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he sat, or he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Well, you, we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill to which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. For several months, we've been looking at Luke's gospel. And along the way, we've seen Luke's intent. He desired that his account of all that Jesus had begun to do and to teach would be used to build up those in the faith. That it'd be used to build us up in our faith. He's concerned that his account of Jesus's life that we would really understand not just the facts concerning his life, but that we would understand his work, his mission, and his message. And Back in chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist in the beginning of his ministry and how he proclaimed or made straight the way of the Lord. He had come to prepare the way of Messiah. And how did John accomplish that work? He accomplished that work by preaching the gospel to the Jews. The Jews had thought that they were in right relationship with God because they were descended from Abraham. They thought that they were in right relationship with God because they had an external righteousness, an external obedience to the law. They had no idea that the salvation that Messiah was going to bring was a salvation from sin. They had no idea that Messiah was coming to reconcile even them with God. They believed that Messiah was coming to save them from an earthly oppression. That He was coming to give them, as it were, their best life now. They had no idea that they were in bondage, that they were enslaved to sin. Last week, we observed Jesus in his wilderness temptation. How he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted during and at the end of this 40 day period. He is tempted and and he's proven sinless. He's proven authentic. Authentic. He is able to be one better than Adam as our representative. He proves that where the first Adam failed, he, the last Adam, succeeded. This morning, we'll begin looking at Jesus' Galilean ministry. And the way Luke records it for us, it's, 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 it's fascinating. We begin right here in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus beginning his ministry in the region of Galilee, and we'll continue here until chapter 9, verse 50. So I want us to, to focus in. We're going to focus back in verse 14 on the text. Luke chapter four, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. I want you to notice that 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 phrase, a report went out about him. A report went out about him. The King James Version says it like this. And a fame of him went out through all the region roundabout. A fame went out about him. Luke is letting us know that. By this time, by the time that Jesus goes back to his own hometown, that there's a buzz already about him. People knew who he was. They had heard about what he was doing. There's some excitement there. And as he comes back to his own hometown, there's sort of a hero's welcome. Like a soldier returning from a long battle. Their their guy, their hometown kid, he's coming back. They'd heard what he'd done in Capernaum. Most likely, the doing of, of, of miracles and healings. They heard of his, his preaching, how people were, were in awe, hanging on every word. They would heard how everyone was glorifying him. They knew that his message was being received in the region. And they were excited to have him come back. Now, over the months as we've been working through Luke's Gospel, we've seen that throughout all of Israel, at this time, there was great expectation that Messiah would soon be coming. That Messiah would soon be on the scene. And those folks in Jesus' hometown some of them family members and relatives, they had no doubt heard the stories. The stories that a voice came from heaven when He was baptized in the Jordan. The stories that He's performing miracles in Capernaum. The stories that He's preaching with such grace and being glorified. And so... I imagine that there was, in this expectation in, in, in his hometown of Nazareth, a, a sense in which many are wondering in their hearts, could he be? Could he be the one? Could he be the Messiah? For Mary and his brothers, I'm, I'm sure that they knew the answer to that. Although we know that even they struggle and in disbelief at some point. So I want you to be aware of this sense of expectancy. I want you to be aware that this group of, of men, women, and children in the synagogue of Nazareth that are hearing Jesus preach to them for the first time, that these were his close friends and family. I mean, think about that. I've pointed this out before. Lake Shastina, we're told, has somewhere in the neighborhood of a little bit over 2,000 people. Nazareth had maybe 400. When I went to a Bible college of about 200, I knew every single person. There was not a person that I was not intimately familiar with. Not a person that I hadn't sat down and talked to. And so Jesus is coming to this group of close family and friends. They are intimately familiar with him. They watched him grow up in their streets. They saw him grow as as we're told in in, in Luke chapter two at the end of Luke chapter two. They saw him grow in favor with God and man and so Jesus comes in, and he's he's received by his friends and families as, as sort of a hero. And he goes into the synagogue and he sits down and he begins to read from them, from the Isaiah, from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, one thing that you're probably probably aware of. There's not that many times in the New Testament when Jesus comes right out and says, I am the Messiah. He does with the woman at the well, right? You know, we've heard that Messiah is coming. When he comes, you know, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who taught, who who I'm speaking to you, I'm the guy. He says it to, 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 to Peter and the apostles after after a huge A huge ministry, we'd call it a ministry disaster, but there are no mistakes with God. But after a lot of people leave, a lot of disciples leave, he asks the disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And Peter, their leader, he, he speaks up and he says, well, some say that you're, you know, that you're the prophet. Some say that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, we know you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is that flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Simon. My Father who's in heaven has revealed that to you. And so there's some times in Scripture when Jesus just comes right out and says, Yes, I'm He. I'm the, I'm the Messiah. And He does that here for His own hometown to begin His ministry. We're not told the content of his sermons in the neighboring cities, in the neighboring towns of Galilee. But but on this Sabbath, as Jesus sits down and he opens up the Isaiah scroll, he tells them plainly, verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." That's an amazing thing to say. There was no ambiguity here. In all of the places where the Jews and Judaism of that day had gotten it wrong, this was not one of them. They knew that this passage in Isaiah chapter 61, they knew that it was talking about Messiah. And when Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, there's no way to mistake what he's saying. He's saying, I am the one. I've come to preach this message to you. And their immediate response is favorable, isn't it? The text tells us that they began to speak well of him. They began to marvel at the graciousness of his words. You think about it somewhat like this. He's just said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And as they're listening, they're going, wow. And that expectation, Messiah is coming, wow. And he's saying this to us. Wait a minute. Preach good news to the poor. Oh. Hey, isn't this Joseph's kid? We know Mary. We know his sisters. We know his brothers. Something's not... No, no, no. Something's not right here. As it begins to sink in what Jesus has just said to them, all of a sudden they come to their senses. And they're like, wait a minute. You can't be Messiah. We know you. That hope and anticipation, it was quickly replaced with unbelief. And soon that unbelief is going to be replaced with murderous rage. As they will attempt to kill him by throwing him off the cliff of the city. So for the rest of our time this morning, I'd like us to look at Jesus' response found in verses 23-27. through I'd like us to ask that question. What is it in His response that makes them move from unbelief to murder? What is it that makes them move from from simple doubt to hostility? That's a pretty big jump, isn't it? I can be mad at you. It doesn't mean I want to kill you. Luke 23, or Luke chapter 4, verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown now notice how he begins he says doubtless you will say to me physician you, you will quote this proverb physician heal yourself now we know at a time in which they did this Jesus is referring to that time in, his, in, his, in their ultimate rejection when they will say at his crucifixion you healed others now heal yourself He is confronting, he begins by confronting their unbelief. But notice how he continues. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your your hometown as well. Now I want to remind you, Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows what is in their hearts. And he knows that they are seeking after signs and wonders. Isn't that how it is today? I mean, like a moth drawn to a flame, we're kind of drawn to spectacle, aren't we? They wanted to see a miracle worker. They were looking for a magic show. And Jesus cuts to the heart of their complaint. They're not interested in His gracious words any longer. They wanted to know, does this guy have power? Can he prove that he is able to be a political leader? Can He prove that He's able to rise us, the Jewish nation, to prominence again? Can He prove that He's got some power? Now remember, many in this time had already made up their mind about who Messiah was going to be. They had already made up their minds He was going to be a great political leader who would lead the Jews to great prominence in the world. And so it was power that they wanted to see. And sadly, I think we can identify with them a little in our own day. Messiah was coming to preach the gospel to the poor. He was coming to preach liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. But the Jews, they took this woodenly literal. They were looking for earthly temporal blessings. They sought a Messiah who would come and make them physically wealthy, a Messiah who would come and free them from Roman oppression. They they wanted him to be a political power. They wanted him to be a mighty man who would come and give them, as it were, their best life now. But this is not the mission of Messiah at all. Jesus didn't come to make financially poor people wealthy. That's not the purpose. He came to save the poor in spirit from their sins. Now think about that through the lenses of the gospel. You and I and all mankind alike, we owe God a debt that we can never repay. We have all sinned. We all deserve the hottest fires of hell because we have all broken His holy law. But God, who is rich in mercy, He's granted to the spiritually poor the righteousness of Christ in place of their wretchedness. He has granted The spiritually poor, the righteousness of Christ in place of our wretchedness. Our spiritual bank was not empty. It was in the red. We were not just broke. We had a hopeless debt that we could never repay. And Jesus paid it all. He reconciling the poor in spirit to God. When Messiah preaches the good news to the poor, it has nothing to do whatsoever with temporal financial gain. Nothing. But it has everything to do with saving sinners. Have you ever heard somebody say this? And this is really popular in our day. Deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement. I actually took that off of a famous uh, false teachers website. Deliverance deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement. Friends, I want to tell you that that is a misunderstanding of the gospel equal in scope to the misunderstanding of the Jews of the first century. It fails to recognize that Jesus is not concerned so much with our physical health and wealth as he was in healing a much worse problem. The curse of sin. Physical healing is not promised in the atonement. It is the the resurrection of spiritually dead sinners to spiritual life that is promised in the atoning work of Christ. And ultimately, it will include a resurrection from physical death to everlasting life. But make no mistake, Jesus did not come to give you your best life now. He did not come so that you could store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The Jews in their desire for their best life now, they, they, they missed the whole point of Messiah's mission. They missed the whole point of Messiah's message. And sadly, many of them, like those of his own hometown, they rejected him when he did not line up with their preconceived ideas of who he would be and what he would do. And so Jesus reveals their hearts and tells them, That they were seeking for signs of power. And in their seeking for signs of power, they rejected Jesus. Jesus refused to do for them what they wanted. He had not come to be a a magician, He had not come to perform for them, He had come to preach the gospel. He would do many miracles. But not in the midst of such unbelief. They wanted Jesus to prove he had power to give them a better life here and now on earth. They cared little about being saved from the wrath of God for their sins. Their expectation about Messiah just simply did not match. And they took Jesus And their expectation, they lined them up. There wasn't a match. Verse 25. Continuing verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Away. This is a sad homecoming indeed, friends. Jesus had gone from being warmly welcomed to hated in only a few hours time. What was it about these two stories that Jesus tells from the Old Testament? What was it about these two instances that send these people who were just marveling at his gracious words into a murderous rage. Well, the first thing that I'd like you to notice is that both the widow in, 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 in Sidon and Naaman the Syrian are Gentiles. Did you catch that? They're both Gentiles. The Jews hated these people. And if you look back at the stories, these were these were times of, of, of great distress. And yet God sends deliverance to only these two Gentiles. And the Jews, they in their hatred, they thought these people were filthy, both spiritually and physically, just filthy people are dirty. And on the other hand, they thought of themselves as clean. We're the children of Abraham. We keep the law. They weren't looking for a, re- for a Messiah to reconcile them to God because, well, God ain't mad at me. I'm good with God, right? Abraham is my, my daddy and I, and I obey the law. No, they were looking for a Messiah to come and validate their belief that they were already right with God, and Jesus is attacking their misunderstanding. He's attacking their misunderstanding of His, of his ministry, of His mission. He had come to, to, to free sin-enslaved captives, not those who thought they were free already. He had come not for the righteous, but for sinners. Now, the second thing that I want you to notice here is that in both instance Jesus is pointing to the sovereign choice of God in deliverance. The sovereign choice of God in deliverance. There were many widows. There were many lepers. But God chose to save only two Gentiles. see, Jesus is attacking their, their Jewish sense of entitlement, their sense of entitlement. They had this self-righteous sense that they were better than others, because they were descended from Abraham, because they had the law. So, friends, I think we ought to learn from the mistakes of these first century Jews. They didn't receive Christ because they thought his mission was to give them their best life now. In our day, in this country with great wealth, we tend to think, or we tend to take it for granted, that God's blessing is on us because we live in America. God bless America. We tend to think that we're in a right relationship with God because we've either grown up in the church or because now as adults we go to church on a regular basis. The message Jesus had for these Jews is one that we must not miss. Unless you are given eyes to see your spiritual condition, you will never be saved. Unless we are given eyes to see our spiritual condition, we can never be saved. Greedy liars flood our airwaves these days, telling us that God is promising us health and wealth if we just send them our money. God never made that promise, friends. They are lying to you. The promise of God is this. If you're given eyes to see your helpless, your hopeless debt, the fact that you could not repay one offense, that you could not repay the offense of even one sin against an infinite holy God by spending all eternity in hell, And and if you repent, having seen that, and trust in Jesus, God will forgive your sin debt and declare you righteous. How can God promise this? Because He's already poured out the righteous wrath, the righteous punishment that you deserve on Jesus at the cross. That was Jesus' mission. Please, friends, do not make the mistake of the Jews and count your sin as a light thing. When you compare yourselves to God's holy law, it should should drive you to utter despair. It should terrify you. It should convince you that you truly deserve God's wrath. That you're worthy, not of His love, but that you're worthy of hell. It's only when one sees His wretchedness, it's only when one sees the desperate need for rescue that he'll ever cry out to God for deliverance. If you're sitting here today and you've never considered yourself worthy of hell, I hope that God will use this message to terrify you. Salvation is not for those who need no saving. You get that it's not for those who are not in need of rescue. It is not for those who are good people. The salvation of God is from the mighty wrath of God against sinners worthy of that wrath. If you're a sinner and you realize your sin debt, if you realize that it is unpayable, Then call on the name of the Lord. Cry out to Jesus for rescue and he will save you. But I want you to know that that is a a desperate thing. It is a desperate thing to call on the name of the Lord. It is not, oh Lord, come into my heart and give me all the goodies because you love me so much. It is a desperate thing that comes from a desperate heart that must be rescued from a perilous end. It is, oh God, oh God, if, if you don't save me, I have no hope at all. When I I, I look at my balance sheet, when I look at the balance sheet of my sin, I know that I am worthy of hell. Lord, in eternity and hell could not pay such a debt. I'm powerless to fix the mess that I'm in. I'm powerless. Please, in your mercy, save me. Save me. Jesus came to save the powerless. If you call out to God in true desperation. For your hopeless condition. You will be saved. But if you've never seen the hopelessness of your condition. Don't rest on the fact that you prayed some prayer a long time ago. Don't rest on the fact that you go to church or that you live in America. Don't rest. Don't rest. Because it's only when one sees his true spiritual condition that he can truly be saved. Let's pray. Father, it breaks my heart when I look at you returning to your own hometown to preach the gospel to those whom you love dearly, who you grew up around, to see them turn it at your message desiring for themselves temporal blessing and not even being aware of the fact that they needed rescue that they needed to be rescued from the the righteous wrath of the father against their sins lord thank you for letting them be an example to us that we can that we can see that we can be given eyes to see that it's not temporal physical blessing that you desire to give us but that you desire to give us something much better you desire to adopt us into your family to call us sons and daughters and to grant us eternal life and we know that you desired it because you did not even spare your own son but gave him up for us how will you not also freely give us all things father i pray that you would that you would use this message that you would use your gospel to pierce through the hard shell of our hearts that is so easily entangled so easily enticed by the things of this passing world so easily put to to, to to focus on lesser things and that you would give us a heart that beats for greater things Father I pray that you would make us here at Lake Shastina Community Bible Church people that are people that would rather be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good than so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Lord, I pray that we would love you more, that you would grant us greater measures of love for you, that we would have more faith in you, that you would grant us greater measures of faith in you. That you would command what you will, but that you would grant what you command. Father, we confess our weakness. We confess our hopelessness, our helplessness. And Lord, we throw our, our, our confidence not in our own strength, not in our righteous deeds, not in, 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 in anything that we could do, but in Christ who alone accomplished our salvation. And we cling to him. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Thank you for giving us hearts that beat to praise you. Amen.